Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 110. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's guest is Vince Gutera. We'll be joining him in about 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you love poetry. So make sure you click the like button and share and subscribe, all those things that you can do just with a click of your little mouse or your pad or whatever you're watching this on to uh, help poetry spread around the internet, which is always what we want to do. Um, you can also leave reviews on iTunes and things like that. Give us, you know, give us five stars. I think it's worth five stars, right? It's just a click. Uh, so go ahead and do that right now, if you would, please. Um, now, we always like to start with uh, Poet Respond and um, poems about current events. And we have two just amazing poems, I thought, um, that we published this week. And um, they're by Amit Majmadar about um, the crisis in Afghanistan and uh, what's been going on. And um, Amit is just, he was uh, the guest on Rattlecast number 55. And he's a doctor, a working doctor, and a um, brilliant poet, was a poet laureate of Ohio for a while. And um, just, you know, amazing writer. And these are two amazing poems, I thought. Amit um, can't join us today. And he doesn't like to record audio, I don't think. So I'm just going to read these poems, even though you might have already read them. Um, but for the podcast, I think it's worth worth sharing and reading these two poems. So the first poem uh, I'll put on screen here. This is um, The Migration Diary of Hala Almasi. And um, let's roll down and read um, Amit's note. He says, A refugee crisis of our own making, a botched war, an evacuation, thousands of people endangered. This poem strives to get beyond the abstraction of nameless Afghans leaving for somewhere, uh, leaving for somewhere from somewhere and follows one specific individual as she navigates her new world. And that is his note on this poem. And um, let's go ahead and read it. And as I always um, tell my kids, I don't do voices. These are in the two poems we're publishing here um, are in different voices, but I don't really do voices. I'm not an actor type. Uh, poems are just in my voice, so um, apologize for that. But but let's let's hear this poem. This is the migration diary of Hala Almasi. Fish would have eaten my eyes if my eyes didn't look so much like fish eggs, little black dots suspended in jelly. My ovaries are clumps of fish eggs. I lay them one by one in foreign toilets, little red drops between my thighs, curling like ink in the water, like smoke from your mouth. Don't ask me what it was like. I have no similes for you. But you're a poet, Hala. No, I am like a poet. I think a lot about what I have lost. I wrap my head and hair like I am still bleeding from the ears. The face it framed is not the face I had back home. This face is just my likeness. And that is where the similarity ends. I have, a, I have left a language in the mirror over a cracked sink in Kabul. That is why, left to right, reads right I, everything in my head. Call it mirror writing, like da Vinci's notebooks, women's beautiful severed heads floating free among siege machines, tanks, a giant crossbow. I was launched by a crusader catapult over the wall of your city, my head with my tongue missing, my tongue with my tongue missing, my tongue missing my tongue. Apocalypse means unveiling, means stripping away, down, bare, What does it mean when the white man trying to enter me in a database asks, Sweetie, aren't you hot under all that cloth? The man on the bus who said, 
what he, what he said did not see me. He saw my average of 4.2 offspring. I am a pomegranate refugee, a dirty bomb full of placentas and human shrapnel, a mama fly baggy with maggots. I have imagined dying continuously for the past 4.2 years, so it's sweet of his hatred to imagine so much life for me, in me. I don't know whether to pat his hat and tell him I like women, or point at the place where I hunger and whisper quintuplets. First, it was only a husband will make you happy, Hala. Now, only a baby will make you happy, Hala. I will be happy only if my body sleeves another body, ideally a male one. If I fled in the heat back home, I can flee in the snow out here. This, in this new country, I want new blessings. May the icicles in your mouth turn into fingers. May the shudder in your legs turn into a daughter. I rub my nose in old book smells all day until 5 p.m., working along each row of blossoms, a systematic hummingbird. Sometimes I'll read one slowly in a cushiony green chair, and not a single bomb taps me on the shoulder to inform me it's time to leave the country. To close my life like a book, like a whole library shuttering its eyes, left behind for someone else to burn. I have one friendship that survived, one surviving friend, I should say. My husband worries the internet will corrupt me. If you write me about my poems, friend, just know it may be weeks before I tiptoe back to this account. The risk is not corruption, it's corrosion. All this rain beats the wife out of me. My bronze skin bruises blue, oxidizes green. One day I swear the rust will lock my legs shut. Faith means defending with your fists and teeth, a name, a scarf, a particular way of bowing to the ground and then neglecting them after the mob moves on, switching your focus to cinnamon pecans or a pot of basil, the faith whose child I am is a child in my care. There are your toys, God. Amuse yourself. Mom's, mommy's busy. My child, my oppositional defiant child demanding, I oppose and defy. Not particularly wanted, really, but no less mine for that. The woman undergoes the marriage. The woman undergoes the man's last name, the woman goes under the man, the woman undergoes the parting of her seas so the man with the staff can enter her promised land, the woman undergoes the miscarriage, the woman undergoes the man's war, the men say they promised the women nothing, the country goes under, the men put the women on a raft and say go, so we go, some cross, some under. There was a first poem um, from uh, Amit that we published this week. That was Thursday's poem, The Migration Diary of Hala Almasi. And the other one I'm just going to read, uh, maybe one of the sections, and then you can find it online at rattle.com, of course, and read the rest. Um, but this is a different poem, um, and I'll read his note here. Um, this poem is about the veterans who have returned and will be returning from our foreign wars. I remember working with many during my training since we rotated through the Cleveland VA hospital. Killing kills something in the killer. And that was uh, Amit's note. And here's the poem. Or at least the first, the first section of the poem. It's long. But I'm going to read the first one. This is Rodriguez. And uh, this is Recurring Nightmares of Returning Soldiers. Rodriguez. He's upside down and turning clockwise, the same slow way Torres did when he found him hanging in the garage. A steel cable connects a house arrest ankle bracelet to a puppeteer beyond the clouds. 
His head is three feet above the Swat Valley. He knows there's a helicopter up there somewhere dangling him like a cherry over the mouth of hell. He's naked, but he's got his M27. The valley crackles awake on all sides. The dirt pops like a pond tossing raindrops back at heaven. He's a bait goat. I can't decide where to fire my weapon, Doc. At the guys firing at me from the mountains, or the chopper I know is up there somewhere. So I curl myself. Torres used to work his abs that way, knees hooked on the pull-up bar. Beast. I curl myself up and start chewing through the cable like a rat, front teeth like a rat. I feel it fraying. These little metal threads tickle my beard. They're shooting wild, but they're getting tighter. Think of dragonflies crisscrossing, less than a foot from your ears. I think I bit my tongue last Tuesday, though I still don't know where. I should feel it, right, Doc? In the morning, if I bit my tongue in my sleep? All I know is I spat out a mouthful of blood on the sheets, and I've got this chipped tooth right here and no money for the dentist. Got an edge like a skinning knife. I'd slit my finger open if I stroked it clean across. And um, you can read the rest. The next is Chiro, and then a whole series of these dreams, um, uh, recurring nightmares of returning soldiers that um, Amit was chronicling in his um, time there. Um, so there was Amit Majmadar, who, um, just a wonderful poet, and, and two great poems about, about current events. Um, his newest book, which just came out last year, and we were talking about on the show in episode 55, is uh, right here, what he did in solitary. Um, so check those out. I thought, too, we would go and do a little bit of a blast into the past. Um, there was a big uh, controversy on literary Twitter this week about some um, editor of, um, was it Baron magazine? And um, so it's just kind of funny. I think, you know, she said um, something about how poetry doesn't, doesn't matter or something, and then there was a big Twitter or whatever. And um, she ended up being let go from Baron Magazine. Um, and so, and it's just so funny that um, this was six years ago. And this was another scandal, which I kind of forgot about. Um, here's a poem. I am Michael Derrick Hudson. If anybody remembers Michael Derrick Hudson, um, in 2015, uh, six years ago this week, it came out that he um, published a poem. Let me pull up this article. Um, this is an article in BuzzFeed. They pretend to be us while pretending we don't exist. And the, and the subtitle is a uh, white poet, Michael Derrick Hudson. Um, his use of the Chinese pen name Yi Fen Chao was an act of yellow face that is part of a long tradition of white voices drowning out those of color in the literary world. And so um, what Michael Derrick Hudson did is used this Yi Fen Chao pen name and um, to publish a poem that, that wasn't being published, I guess. And then um, ended up being published and then ended up being in Best American Poetry as selected by um, Sherman Alexie. And so he confessed to this in the back of that um, Best American Poetry Anthology issue. And um, so that became another literary scandal. And this is Sam Cha's um, poem in response to that. And then we'll get to uh, today's guest, Vince Gutierrez. So here's Sam Cha with I Am Michael Derrick Hudson. I am Michael Derrick Hudson. Forgive, please, my slightly archaic diction, my floralities, my fedoral syntax, my apiary japes. I don't know any better. All of my English comes from Robert Browning or Frost. I can never quite remember which. Thus, clastigloss, fractured, 
not quite right, which is my complaint about the world. Have you spent any time looking at the world lately? I have. I use a microscope because I fucking love, I fucking love science. I look at bees and I look at flowers. These are the traditional subjects of poet scholars. The thing about bees and flowers is that they need each other and they don't have any use for me. All that gaudy architecture of vegetable love and chitinous twerk, and I mayn't live in it. Oh, pity me, marooned on this chalk-dry isle of man, I, Adam Manquet, pale macaque, eveless, crucified, clenching my feudal Q-tip, my lonely pen, where brown bees murmur, but will not murmur to me. Oh, I know. I am no flower, nor was meant to bumblebee. The white men are the animals with the most venomous sting. Though we have rendered every Caesar and whale in the triworks of time, and have produced thereby a quantity of ink. Though we have named the beasts of field and sea, though we have tasted them all, have cooked them all with molecular gastronomy, they will not pollinate me. I should have been a woman or Chinese. And that was Sam Cha once again with his response uh, six years ago this week to the Michael Derrick Hudson controversy. Um, and now let's go move on. We're going to take a brief break. And then I'm going to hook up with uh, Vince Gutera, and we will be right back in just a moment. Let me put up a little bit of uh, music here and a splash screen, and we will be right back. We're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, um, our guest today is Vince Gutera. Vince is a professor of English at the University of Northern Iowa, where he served as editor of the North American Review for 17 years. After that, he served as a, a editor of Starline, the print journal of the International Science Fiction and Fantasy Poetry Association. His collections of poems include Dragonfly, Ghost Wars, Fighting Kite, and the upcoming Pacific Crossing. But his newest book, which I'll put on screen here, is The Coolest Month. Um, it's a book, you know, it's a play on um, April is the Cruelest Month. Um, it's a book of poems written in August for um, the poetry prompts that go on at that time. So it's a book of uh, a month's worth of poetry prompt poems. And um, he's on the line with us now, Vince Gutierrez. Hey, Vince, how you doing? Yeah. Hey, how you doing, Tim? I'm good. Yeah, sorry for the trouble. I don't know what happened. It was good when we did a test call. But anyway, it's great to have you on. Do you want to start out by reading a poem? Sure. Sure. Do you have do you have uh, that poem Gawain's Rat? No, no, wait. I don't want to start with that. Um, do you have that poem Two Decades Gone? Two Decades that Gone. That I sent you. Yep, yep, I do. Have it right, right here. Yeah, put up on screen for everybody, and uh, and go ahead whenever okay. you're ready. All right. This is a poem I wrote yesterday. Two decades gone. Today, twenty years after nine eleven, we are finally out of Afghanistan. But still, those 2,977 souls are missing from Passover, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Diwali, Ramadan. 
Yeah, fresh, hot off the press is two decades gone. A Heinaku sonnet. Could you explain what that is? A Heinaku sonnet. Yeah, Heinaku is a form that was invented, gosh, maybe going on 20 years ago by Eileen Tabios. And it's a word count uh, poem. Well, a line of, with one word, the second line with two words, the third line with three words. And uh, and so you can see it. You can see it there if you still have that up on the screen. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then I invented a variant, which is the Heineku sonnet, uh, which is fourteen lines. And actually, that last couplet is still a Heineku, but it's been squished into two lines to make fourteen. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually using uh, there's a a variant of my of my invention by Bruce Neat. Uh, where there's rhyming, and Bruce rhymes the the, the the end of the first Heineku with the end of the second Heineku, and then the the third and fourth Heineku, the last lines rhyme, mm-hmm. and then the, the couplet rhymes. Um, and so mine is actually uh, using Bruce's uh, format, though I've I've got I've I've got they they all rhyme. It's all a all the way down. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so that's from yesterday. Yeah, so do you, uh, you know, this book of poems, The Coolest, uh, the coolest Month, that's a book that um, is, is all about prompt poems and, um, and written in a daily fashion. Um, do you write poems every day? Is that sort of part of your practice, I, or is it just usually I, your practice in April? I don't write poems every day. I'm, I'm uh, uh, you know, I'm an English professor, and so I'm pretty, pretty dang busy. But these are all uh, from prompts. Uh, as you said, mm-hmm. and uh, so, so let's tell us a little bit about your your background as a poet. Like, how did you? I'm always curious about this, but how did you get into becoming a poet? Um, I know you were. We had a uh, a veterans poem. I know you were drafted and went to Vietnam. Um, what what time period did you start writing poems? Okay, first of all, I'm a Vietnam era vet, so mm-hmm. I, I was not sent to Vietnam, oh. though I was in the in the army during during the Vietnam War, but they just never sent me there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was lucky in that respect. Um, and um, I, I started writing poetry as a child. I was maybe six years old when I wrote my first poem. And and I don't have that poem anymore, but I, I remember that I think I was in, you know, in the lower grades and, and it got published in the school newsletter and all this stuff. And uh, I do remember that it's a, it was a poem about the sun and it was in... Uh, alternating quatrains and alternating rhymes. So already I was a formalist, even as a, you know, as a six-year-old. Interesting. Um, And and what was it that that sort of compelled you to do that as a six-year-old and and then keep up with it? Do do you know what was like the driving force behind, behind writing? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I remember I was on, on a ferry boat with my dad and, and I remember seeing the sun and I, and this poem just started to come to me and I didn't really write, a lot of poetry after that until I was in high school when I had teachers, English teachers who encouraged poetry writing. And then I went to college and studied, studied poetry, you know, uh, and so on. And, uh, and here we are. Yeah. Uh, well, do you want to read another poem? Um, what do you want to read next? Yeah. Um, let me, let me read another, uh, another Heineke sonnet, the poem, uh, Santana at Woodstock, 1969. Okay. So again, this is the Heineku, one, two, three. And 
Santana at Woodstock, 1969. Exploding, soul sacrifice, all the batteries in the world couldn't broadcast energies like that maelstrom, bass, organ, guitar. Erupting drums, congas, bueno para gozar. Half a million fans' minds blown. Very cool. Santana at Woodstock, 1969. Is that another new one? Um, relatively? No, no, that's... I wrote that in 1969. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> I wrote that about, I don't know, five years ago. I One thing that's really interesting with you is that you're the editor of the North American Review for such a long time. Um, and, and, you know, it's one of the oldest, I think it's the oldest literary magazine in the country. Um, I think it's the second oldest um, of any magazine after the Saturday Evening Post, I think, uh, if I remember that's that right. right. And um, yes. yeah, so so what was it like taking that over? And um, and what was it like being an editor? I don't talk to editors much, actually. Well, that was a lot of work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot, you know, uh, as uh, I am. But it, um, I read probably 70,000 poems a year, mm-hmm. something like that. And uh, um, and published maybe one to two percent of those. Mm-hmm. I might have published in a year, I might have published a hundred poems. Um, so, I don't know. If, I don't know if that math is right, but but something like that. And um, let's see. Um, yeah, I did that for sixteen years, and then and then uh, and then um, event, and then quit doing it. And uh, and after that, became the editor of Starline, which is the the um, the print journal of the um, Science Fiction and Fantasy Poetry Association. And yeah. I did that for three years. Yeah, that's a really cool project. I don't yeah. know if people, you know, if how familiar people, it's sort of like a, almost, it feels to me similar to the uh, haiku community, where, um, you know, a lot of the people who know about it love it that are into science fiction and fantasy poetry. Um, but it's sort of something that's not as well known, I think. It's a great resource. They have the Risling Award. Which um, honors the best um, the best science fiction poetry um, published in the year, kind of like a best American poetry anthology, but just for science fiction poetry, which is really cool. And you can pick up a copy. And if you're a, I think if you're a member, you can vote um, for the winner of the award. So I think how they do it is you you nominate um, poems get nominated. And correct me if I'm wrong, Vince, but uh, and they they get nominated, and then all the members get the copy of the book, and then they vote on the winner. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, it's just such a cool project and, and such a um interesting you know genre of poetry, which is a little underappreciated. I think we had a um we had a issue for that um, a speculative poetry we call it, but just the same kind of thing. Um, and it was just really fun reading those poems. It made me wonder why people don't don't write more science fiction poetry and speculative and fantasy poetry. Um, wh- what do you think? Like why why is it like a subgenre within the poetry subgenre? Well, you know, I think that that um, that people just aren't aware that 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 it's there, you know, and particularly the, that the organization is there. I know that that I had been writing speculative poetry for some time before I discovered the the uh, the uh, the organization. Um, so, uh, in our definition, well, I mean, speculative poetry, of course, is huge, right? But but uh, when I was the editor of, uh, of Starline, uh, my definition was science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Um, 
and occasionally some science poems. So I don't think I took very many of those uh, when I was the editor. Yeah, and I don't know. It, it just the, the the funny thing is that, that I didn't know about it either until I think they nominated somebody nominated a poem from Rattle from, um, from um, for that. Nope, I'm getting a lot of feedback, Vince. That's better. It's okay. Right. Yeah, it's better now. Whatever happened is over. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So I was saying, I, I didn't really get, um, I didn't know about it either until um, a poem from Rattle was nominated. And then I got to explore it. And it's such a cool um, organization. The website, let me tell people the website too, really quick. It's um, science, let me. It's sfpoetry.com. That's what it is. Sfpoetry.com. I'll put it up on screen too. And the the organization is, I said organization, or did I say organization? It's, it's uh, association, mm -hmm. science fiction and fantasy poetry association, uh, SFPA, where the F is doing double duties. Um, and so, so what is it about, um, what about, what is it that draws you to writing um, those kind of speculative poems, which, which you do as well? Well, I've, I've been reading and writing science fiction again, since I was a child, mm -hmm. uh, that's really where my, my literary interest moved after I, I, uh, that poem. I think I was probably, that first poem, I was probably nine or ten when I discovered uh, Andrew Norton in the, in the school library. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, uh, and then, you know, I, I, it was like a whole, a whole universe opened up for me. And I, and I wrote a little bit of, of, of science fiction Science fiction per se, I mean fiction as mm -hmm. such, uh, prose, and uh, and then eventually uh, that crossed over into uh, writing poetry, maybe in the last mm, fifteen years or so. Yeah, it's interesting because there's something very sort of freestyle about your poetry, and and there's a way that when you're writing speculative and science fiction type stuff, um, a lot of feedback. Is there something um, hitting the microphone or something like that? No. Um, anyway, yeah. There, so there's something very, um, you know, creative and, and free about the way you write. Like it feels almost, I don't know, like you're playing jazz or something as you write these poems. And there's something about about speculation that that's similar. I feel like you're you're playing with like your imagination in the same way. I think. How do you think those two are related? Well, you know, I there came a point I think in my writing where I used to try to be serious, you know, in poetry, and I just thought, well. I should be having fun, you know, and so I think that allowed me to open up and and not worry so much about getting in the New Yorker. I'll never get into New Yorker, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, um, yeah. So um, I started to write light po light poems, you know, uh, humorous poems, or I think they're humorous anyway. And uh, and and then my my old love of of science fiction. Uh, from when I was younger, came back. I I had never stopped loving it, but then um, the writing of it came back. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hear and another, fantasy as well. Let's hear another poem. What do you want to read next? Well, let me read you a science fiction poem from yeah. from uh, from the book. Um, in the book, uh, there are thirty poems, uh, one for each uh, day in April, and and the. The poem I'm going to read is is uh, is head. It's the uh, the heading is April fourth, and so I actually wrote that poem on April fourth, uh, twenty thirteen. No, twenty thirteen. Yes, uh, 
I uh, had written, I started doing NAPORIMO, National Poetry Writing Month, uh, writing a poem a day in April uh, in 2012. And when I hit 2018, I realized that I had hundreds of poems from that, you know, maybe a couple hundred. And um, and so then I started to put together uh, this collection, um, this chapbook. So this is uh, April 4th. The prompts uh, are in the back. There's a, There are notes in the back that explain what the prompts were that produced a poem. So here's my note in the back uh, for April 4th. This elegy came from two prompts suggesting possible uh, poem titles. Maureen Thorson suggested crafting a title from uh, Scottish science fiction writer Ian Banks' extremely odd poetic names for spaceships. And, um, and then um, there was also a prompt from, from uh, uh, Robert Lee Brewer, uh, uh, take the phrase, hold that blank, and replace the blank with a word or phrase and write your poem. And so... Um, Putting those two together, which is what I always try to do, I try to merge the prompts. Um, one prompt was about spaceships and the other was hold that something. And so it, it became, the title was originally hold that ship, but now it's called Elegy for Ian Banks. And when I wrote it, uh, some of you may know Banks' uh, work and life. And, and he was uh, uh, very ill with uh, cancer when I wrote it. And, uh, and then it became an elegy because he died not long after. So this is... Uh, has, a, has a, an epigraph for Ian Banks, 1924, uh, 54, 1954 to 2013, science fiction writer known for fanciful, fanciful spaceship names. And then another epigraph, the Irish Corvette Macha, a small warship, was dispatched to France to bring William Butler Yeats's body home to Ireland for reburial in 1948. And here's the poem. Ian waits at Fourth Port in Rosyth, where his father had once worked. He sits on a dock, dangling his feet into thick air over dark green water, where once submarines lay for repair, their blunt noses airing in dry dock. The clipper spaceship Screwloose, from his novel The Player of Games, is on the way to fetch him, to ferry him to Avalon, Inisafalon, Isle of Apples, where King Arthur reposes, braced to save Albion, England, from peril. Ian squints into the gray, storm-clouded sky, uncertain from which direction Screwloose would appear, swoop in. The three-masted ship gracefully slips into dock. Ian pays not one whit of attention, still scanning the skies. Ian is surprised when the sailing ship's captain strides up, blue-plumed tricorn and tasseled epaulets glistening gold. Mr. Banks, I presume? When will you board, sir? I am master of this vessel to leeward of you. She is screw loose. Jaw black, Ian doesn't know what to say. He allows himself to be led onto the deck of the clipper ship. Captain McBride gives the order to cast off, weigh anchor. The sun emerges brightly from behind clouds. Standing in the bow, Ian leans into salty spray, the sea scudding and frothing as it breaks on either side of the clipper. Ian feels the cancer somehow fading away, black flakes sloughing off, flurrying away in wind. Ian recalls how he had driven today to the roadside docks in a bit of a frenzy. He'd imagined he would be tardy and need to, need to sprint, 
yelling out for someone to hold screw loose, even as it left, or worse yet, there'd be no spaceship. Hearing a strange metallic noise, like a submarine klaxon, dive, dive, Ian turns and looks upward at the sails on the closest mast. Someone in a boat alongside the screw loose would have seen Ian smile, a sails harden and shift, drape a translucent metallic canopy over the deck, flare 50s rocket fins. The spaceship screw loose lifts from the water and streaks smoothly up into air, deep space, the heavens. And that was uh, Elegy for Ian Banks uh, from Vince Gutierrez's newest book, The Coolest Month. And um, so, so these prompts that are written for, um, for National Poetry Month, which is in April. And I always, I don't know, I kind of always have mixed feelings about National Poetry Month, to be honest, because it feels like it's like a hard sell, whereas poetry works a little better on, as a soft sell. Um, and, and I don't know, I mean, and, and so, but it is important to have sort of a time set aside for teaching purposes and for, you know, publicity and things like that. Um, what do you think about National Poetry Month? Is that something that you find is effective in introducing poetry to, to students and people? Um, what do you think well, about it? Well, I do. I do. Uh, I've, I've used, even before I started, uh, writing a poem a day in April, um, I had always used the, uh, a national um, poetry month, you know, to to bring attention to poetry among my students, you know, among among friends and and, and acquaintances, uh, and so I'm I'm a fan of it. I know know that that there are people who who worry about it, you know, as being sort of you know commercial or whatever, and and I just I just think that any attention we can bring to poetry mm-hmm. is to the good. Yeah, I, I just I guess what I feel like is that when people discover poetry, it's usually a, a story like yours. Like I talk to people who are poets, you know, every week, and um, and it, and it feels like they all discovered poetry sort of on their own in a way that um, you know, wasn't part of a school thing necessarily. Like it, it um, I don't know, like like it, it sort of lands in the right spot maybe, and, and maybe if you blow as many seeds as possible, you know, it lands the most places as possible, and and that's probably the case. Um, but, but poetry, there's a way that it's kind of subversive and, and I always just, I don't know, it, it feels a little strange to me to, to market it like that. Like, like you would breast cancer awareness month or something. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, um, let, let's hear another poem. What do you want to read? Uh, what are we going to read next? Um, let's see. The poem begins, the, the book rather mm-hmm. begins with an abecedarian. Uh, and ends with an abecedarian. And um, so the poem, the poem for April 1st is called, April, well, let me, let me give you the, the, um, the prompts. Uh, this abecedarian came from two prompts, an arrival poem from Brewer and writing a poem that has the same first line as another poem, Thorson. So I, I cheated a little bit because uh April is the coolest month is, is, uh, you know, is, um, it's not the same first line. It's not a first line in, in the poem it comes from, from the wasteland. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is probably the most famous line in that poem. And then I, I used it for a title rather than my, from my own uh, first line. So, uh, I wrote this on April 1st, 2013. And, 
uh, it's called April is the Coolest Month or Hoping 30 New Poems Will Arrive. There's always that fear, right, that, <laughs> that, that the muse will not, will not show up. Um, so this is an abecedarian uh, one, word, one word per letter. April's blood-curdling damnable expectation for gorgeous Homeric iambics just kills limp-noodled me. No old pantoums, casitas, rondos, senryu, terzanels, ugh, verse. Well, Xbox, Yu-Gi-Oh, Zoloft? <laughs> That's great. That is a, April is the cruelest month or hoping 30 new poems will arrive. And um, and I love when I, when I get a submission with um, Abacadarians, I always kind of just skip to the last words, and <laughs> and they're almost always the same. You know, everyone's always has a Xerox and a and a zoo or whatever. So um, and it's it's always great to see you know because those, those last three are the tough ones. Um, so it's great to see interesting ones down there. Q Q is a tough one too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So, so talk a little bit about, let me about read that. You, let me, oh, yeah. Jim, wanna... Let me read you the last poem. Yeah, let's do that too. On April 30th. Okay. And the, the prompt for that was um, write a poem. So, from Thorson, the prompt from Thorson was write a poem backwards. Uh, start with the last line, work your way up the page to the beginning. And Brewer's prompt was take the phrase, bury the blank. Right. And, and, and so the blank that I used was zombies. So the poem originally was titled Bury the Zombies. Um, and I wrote, well, you'll see how, okay, I didn't quite follow. Uh, well, anyway, all zombies coming and going. And I'm calling this a somersault abecedarian where you read down one column, which is A to Z. And then the same words come back in the second column, Z to A. So that's the backward. That's how I get oh, the backward. Okay. All right. Again, one word per, per letter. All bury caskets. Dooms exhausted. Forever green, horrific, inside jujubes, kissing lips, miniature, never oblique. Plan quiet reveries. Secure trees. Under visible wound, exit your zipper. And then in reverse, zipper your exit wound, visible under trees, secure reveries, quiet, plan oblique, never miniature lips, kissing jujubes inside horrific green, forever exhausted, dooms caskets, bury all. And that was uh, all zombies coming and going. And again, I love that uh, zipper your exit wound. Uh, What a great phrase that is. Um, so what I wanted to ask is about this, you know, writing a poem a day. How many years did you have you done the April, um, you know, the one day poem thing during the month of April? Well, before 2012, I would do it and then fall off the wagon, you mm-hmm. know, and and often like by that by April 6th, I was I was done. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, and then in 2012, I, th- I said, I'm just going to stick it out and really do it, you know, and I did. Uh, and then I, I've done it every year since. Um, so that's what, 12, so nine years. And, and, and so that's what I want to ask about. Like, how do you, cause I think it's such a productive thing to do to try to force yourself to write even when you don't want to and, and see how things can sort of pop out spontaneously. Um, 
but but how do you how do you keep yourself at it like on the hard days is there is there a trick that you have that you can actually keep it going because a lot of people do that that way you said where they last a few days or a week or so and then throw in the towel well i've gotten so good at it that <laughs> it's not it's not difficult now i mean i i always can you know the the prompts are, are i think what makes it fun for me because the merging of the prompts because mm-hmm. uh you know, sometimes, well, sometimes they, they do work well together because, uh, you know, let's say it's Earth Day, you know, so, you know, both prompts will be about Earth Day. Um, on the 14th day, sometimes they might both ask for sonnets, you know, those are easy days. But mm-hmm. um, but that's 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 the fun of it for me. The beauty of it for me is trying to get get those prompts uh, to elicit, you know, a single poem. Um, and this year, or maybe a couple of years now, I, I'm writing a book of of uh, poems about a swan, hmm. um, um, which are Philippine monsters. And um, the um, it, it's a novel in poems. Uh, there are um, two uh, monsters that two a swan that fall in love, and they. You know, they try to, to they pretend to be every, every you know regular humans and live out in the open and and uh, so anyway, that's the that's the premise for the novel. So I was able to get a lot of those poems, probably twenty or or more of those poems uh, done in April and of this this last April. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was done with the book, and. And then I, I put the book together and I was shooting for a, a chat book and it turns out I had 40 poems. And so I thought, oh, man. And so I, I'm now, I've now gone back. I thought it was done, but now I've gone back to try to make it a full length, full length book and try to fill in more of the, more of the story. Mm-hmm. I did cheat. A, a, uh, the second to the last poem is um, in, in the whole thing is uh, uh covers 30 years and so i was really cheating i was trying to get to the ending of what i saw as the ending of the story and i crammed a bunch of the narrative into one poem and so that's where i'm going to be expanding uh and so to get at least another 10 poems so for these poems they're they're you know for the um you know the national you know poem a day thing um we're using prompts too for the poems about um the um aswang or not yes yeah yes Oh, so I had three prompts, right? Mm-hmm. I had, I had the Napo Rimo prompt. I had, you know, from from Maureen Thorson, I had Robert Lee Brewer's prompt, and then and then the, my my own theme, um, which worked out pretty well. I, I most days it, it worked out. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk about prompts. Like, do you ever write prompts, or and, and what kind of prompt do you think works best for poems? Because we do have a, I don't know if you've seen, but we have a prompt at the end of every episode, and we have that as part of the open mic. And I'm always wondering, like, what, I mean, what, what works best for me are things I think that make it easiest or like um, sort of narrative type prompts that give you something you have to write about. Um, what, but what do you think works the best? Uh, do you have a, a preference for styles of prompts or, or not? No, I don't. I, I just, whatever the prompt is, I just work with it. Uh, um, I suppose the easiest ones are, you know, write, write a rondeau. You know, <laughs> that, that's the hardest easy. for me because I think like, like, what am I going to write about? <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, do you ever write prompts yourself? Um, no, 
No. No, I think I have. Well, in the sense that I'm a teacher, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have written prompts for my classes, but but uh, but no, generally not. Not in the same way that that Maureen and Robert do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. If anybody has any questions for Vince, please leave them in the chat windows. Um, I have open on both Facebook and YouTube, which I'm watching. And um, so do you want to read one of those poems? I think I saw a poem that you sent that's from that new book you're working on. Did I, did yes. I do that right? Do you want to read that so people yes, can uh, have an sure. idea of what you were talking about? Um, this was um, uh, a curdle sonnet. Hang on a minute. Okay. My computer locked up. Hang on. Okay. Um, this is a curdle sonnet, which uh, some of you may know as, as the, the, the short sonnet form invented by Hopkins. Um, and this comes from a prompt uh, to start a line with a quotation from Plath, with a line from Plath, uh, from uh, the... the um, the website Sylvia Plath bot. <laughs> if you like Sylvia Plath, go check that out because you can, uh, it, every day it gives you a line from Sylvia Plath. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so I think this might've been, anyway, okay. Aswan childhood, this is called. And the story here is that, or the point in the story where, uh, the, the male, um, in the story, Santiago, who is, uh, a were dog, uh, and then his wife, um, Clara, is a, is a vampire, a flying vampire. And, and, and Santiago um, has the, – the, the setting is in World War II or from the start – the novel starts in the 30s. And they have moved to the U.S. to escape uh, um, attacks from, from, you know, from people in the Philippines. Um, uh, you know, who are trying to kill us one, right? And um, and Santiago has gone to the gone into the army to fight uh, because he because his wife has been trying to get him to 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 stop being in a swang, and and he he figures out that this is a way for him to continue killing. Um, a swang childhood can't, and the line from from Plath is, "Can such innocence kill and kill?" A swung childhood. Can such innocence kill and kill? Tonight, Malcolm, seven years old, his father at war. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't explain that they have a son who uh, they're just discovering is also in a swung. Hmm. Okay. Can such innocence kill and kill? Tonight, Malcolm, seven years old, his father at war, caught a bat in his bedroom at bedtime. I was afraid my baby would get bit but he held it tight. I could see its fur glowing black between his fingers, and I'm almost sure it was screaming. In utter calm, with an angelic smile, my boy tore its wings off. Worst, my son's own wings then came out, trembling as the bat died. What future deaths will come, Malcolm? That was Aswang Childhood. Uh, from Vince's forthcoming book, um, do, you, do you have a title for that book yet? Well, it's it's the working title is Aswang Love. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm so curious about that. Can you tell a little bit more just about that story about the mythology of the Aswang? 
Yeah, the Oswang are kind of a multi-purpose monster in the Philippines. You, know, mm-hmm. you have you have ghouls who eat dead bodies. You have uh, uh, shapeshifters. You have witches. You have uh, vampires, and um, and they. Um, I think that 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 those monsters came to be a kind of kind of creation myths for explaining things. Like, for example, the the kind of aswang that Clara is, is a mananangal, which is an aswang that can split the top half of her body off from the bottom half and then grow wings and she flies into the night. And, and, uh, and ironically attacks uh, uh, pregnant women and children. And I think that that particular aswang may have been used to explain uh, miscarriages. Hmm. This is a guess on my part, yeah, but, yeah. Um, and uh, because the because the the aswang, the Mananangal aswang has a has a long tongue, you know, let's say 10, 15 feet long, that it can insinuate into a window in, uh, of the bedroom of a pregnant woman and enter her pregnant belly and and suck out the fetus. Oh, wow. Um, well, that was fun. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And so um, I, the thing that interested me about these monsters is that, you know, in, in the Philippines and maybe, you know, um, uh, maybe even in, in the diaspora that, that you have parents who use these, these stories, right. To, to get their kids to behave. Uh, um, anyway, uh, uh the, the, what interested me about it was that when I when I looked into into the literature into into the old stories, the stories were always about about awful monsterly things, you know, and and it, they the monsters were not were not uh, the swung were were not investigated or thought about or or uh, wondered about as 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 beings with with feelings and desires and, you know, and, uh, and dreams. And, and so I thought, I thought that that would make a great story, you know, to told by, by a swung about, about their, about their real lives, their inner lives. Yeah, for sure. I and mean, it's always so fascinating, you know, different mythologies around the world and, and where they come from and how they come from dreams. And then they have a use and, and the way they're spread. That's always such a fascinating thing. Uh, the only I, I, Nick Carbo writes some poems about um, um, mythology from the Philippines, which are interesting too. Um, sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that's going to be a fun book, and it, it ties in too, of course, with the science fiction poetry connection that you have there. Um, yeah, science fiction and fantasy and horror, all three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all combined, and yeah. I just I just love this stuff, and I I always wonder why um, you know poets don't write more in, in genre because it's so entertaining. Um, I actually had a series that I was working on, which I never published or did anything with. Um, and my only goal was to be on the Art Bell, or well, it's Coast to Coast with um, George Norrie. And I thought that um, my idea was that I would pretend it was real, that I um, actually um, was abducted by aliens, and they made me write a poem every night. 
and um, <laughs> they because they were trying to understand humanity, and so they would show me something, and I would have to write a poem about it, and they wouldn't let me go back to my bed until I did. And so my plan was to write this whole book about that, and then get on the coast to coast radio show at night because they have like ten million listeners, and um, and and but but the the point though is that there are so many um, people who are entertained by by speculative writing, and it's something that we don't really touch on. Why do you, why do you think that is? Well, I don't know. I think that that some people think of of science fiction um, as airport literature. Hmm. You know that they don't really understand how how uh, it's just like any great literature that they any literature that they might consider great. And so I think it gets pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Well, when you write this book, you should try to get on that show because uh, there's so many listeners and they would, you know, it would be the best selling poetry book in a while, I think, if you did. And that's something that they would, uh, they would like, you know, I just imagine people reading poems on that show. And I think um, that would be really cool. Um, there's a question here from um, Robbie. I wanted to get back to other things too. Um, and, yep. and Robbie does this here. She says, what would you do or tell your students about how to write from prompts like like what is your advice for prompt writing since you're you know you've done so much of that hmm i think that that i'm not sure what i would tell students per se but i think what what i would tell anyone about it is is to to let yourself be flexible about the prompt you know, it's it's and both both Maureen and Robert say this, that, you know, you don't have to do the prompt it's exactly as written, you know, which mm-hmm. which actually I try to do. But uh, but to to allow it to be a trigger, you know, to allow it to elicit something from inside you that maybe you didn't know was there to be talked about. Um, and so flexibility has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that has to do with the playfulness that you show in this too. Like you're willing to go, you know, you're willing to go all over the place with um with these and 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 sort of take it where your your amusement takes you. Almost it seems. Right, right. Um, do you want to read another poem? What What do you want to read next? Yes, uh, I um uh did a collaboration, a chapbook, uh, with uh, Lee Harlan Bayhan. Uh, a, a, an old friend, uh, uh, a poet who was my classmate in MFA school, and we wrote a, uh, a COVID uh, uh, a pan- a pandemic um, um, chapbook where we took turns every day. It's a, it's a the book is called Corona colon virus, and uh, and there's a sort of a poetics pun there because. Because the the book is made, or the chapbook is made of, of is a corona, a crown of sonnets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, one of us would write a poem, and then the next, the other person would take the last line and write a poem from that, and you know, or a sonnet uh, from that. And we we did that. I think there are twenty. Well, we started to do doubles, and so <laughs> I don't remember recall right offhand how many um, how many. Uh, poems there are something like 22 or maybe 24 mm-hmm. but i'll read one that i wrote uh this is called in memoriam john prine dead of covid 19 most days we expect to hear from a famous author of songs 
loved by millions for decades, even more of his lovely music. He was only 73, John Prine, loving and loved husband and father. My daughter Amelia and I have a duo called Groovy News, and we perform a noteworthy song by Mr. Prine, Angel from Montgomery, about an old woman living with her old husband, their lives a desert of lost dreams. The song asks, how the hell can a person go to work in the morning and come home in the evening and have nothing to say? The man told us simple, unvarnished truths. COVID-19 may have taken John Prine, but in song, he lives on. Uh, a great poem. In memoriam, John Prine, dead of COVID-19. I remember that when you know he passed away and we had a few submissions. I don't know if we published one about John Prine or not. I can't remember. But... um. But yeah, excellent and very interesting hearing a uh, the coronaverse. I like that. Um, you, you usually write in form, and it, it seems I think most of the things you've written in form today, anyway, and most of the things in the book are in form. How do you do? You have a process for approaching form. Like, how do you know? How do you know which form to write a poem in once you have what you want to write about? Or does the content come from the form? Um, or is it just different every single time? Like, if you ask a songwriter, it's kind of like the same question. If you ask, like, does the music or the um, or the the um, lyrics come first, you know? Um, but but is there a form? Does a form follow function, or f- the other way around? Well, you know, I I I really like curdle sonnets, and mm-hmm. so I tend to to gravitate towards that. Uh, but then there are other times when I'll just start writing. Uh, you know, I often start in pentameter and then try to follow the poem wherever it wants to lead. And sometimes that's free verse. Sometimes it's something else. Um, but yeah, I do, I do like forms and I, I are um, formal poetry. And I, I used to, uh, it's be, I've done more and more of that as I've gotten older. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to do about half and half, uh, you know, with free verse and, and, uh, but, but now I, I, it just helps me to to keep the poem going, you know, knowing that I have to rhyme now. I have, mm-hmm. I have to do a certain rhyme at, at this point. Do you find it's hard to go back to, to not using those forms? Oh, no. No? No, not at all. Um, I mean, I, I I write in forms because I like it. But, but, but for example, in the, in the Aswang book, I, I think there are, well, maybe... Maybe a handful in free verse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk about was um, just your your experience as an editor um, for a, for a major magazine. Um, what what do you have any advice you can give for people who are being published, like from the other side of the desk? You know, like like what were you looking for in poems, and and what did you see in submissions that made them stand out, and things like that? Do you have any? Any advice for people who are submitting and trying to get published in magazines like North American Review? Well, my advice would be, <laughs> this will smack of, of Polonius in, in Hamlet, but, <laughs> but to be true to your, to your own vision as an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, the worst thing I find, but particularly with contests, you know, we, we used to have a contest in the North American Review that was the Kurt Vonnegut Fiction Contest. And we ended up scrapping that because everyone kept sending. We just wanted good fiction, right? Mm-hmm. But we wanted to give it a name that that would uh, give it give the the contest some some weight, you know, uh, 
uh, in tradition. And, and, uh, and instead we got a lot of, a lot of bad Vonnegut stories <laughs> yeah. because people thought that's what we wanted, you know, and we just wanted good fiction. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I know it's kind of a truism to say, well, be true to yourself, but, but actually, uh, that's as, as an editor reading, you know, thousands of poems, mm-hmm. uh, every year, I could tell when somebody was, was being, you know, was being inauthentic. Yeah, it's interesting. We, um, it's funny that you say that right now, because we're in the middle of, of picking the winners for the uh, Rattle Poetry Prize right now. And um, every year, you know, people send, they tend to send their longest poem that they like. It's kind of like the standard, because I think there's a sense that, you know, it's only worth a big prize if it's a longer poem. And so we get much like the average length of a submission um, for the contest is about twice as long, maybe, or maybe even higher as a regular submission for a general, the general um, section of their magazine. And, um, and then they tend to be, tend to be heavy too. And there's not a lot of light things and it's hard to find um, things that are more humorous or things that are on different topics. A lot of times the topics are death and and things like that because they're the big topics. And so what happens is that people, um, the winners end up being, um, you know, those kind of poems, like a page or like two pages um, about death somehow or about some kind of very serious issue and, and very heavy and, and, you know, like makes you feel emotions in a great poem. But but we don't get any other poems to choose from almost, it feels like. And the funny thing is that last year, you know, every year I beg for people to send more variety um, and more forms, more short forms, more, um, you know, a wider variety of topics. And last year, we finally had a whole bunch of poems, including the winner was a formal, it was a pantoum. We had two sonnets in there. And so I thought, um, okay, well, I don't have to beg for, for variety anymore. And so this year, looking at the submissions that are in our, our final stack um, and, and going through the whole, you know, list of submissions, it's back to the same thing. Because I, I guess I do have to beg. Um, but, but yes, like send, that's just such great advice to send what you're writing and not try to tailor it to the magazine. Cause we're looking for variety. We don't want to see the same thing every time. Another thing that would happen is we, we would always have a, a guest judge, right. In our poetry contest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often they would write, uh, poems that, that I suspect had a place name that they would change depending on who they thought was reading it. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, uh, uh, we had Lucille Clifton one time as a judge, and we got several poems about Maryland, right? <laughs> because that's where <laughs> yeah. she's from, mm-hmm. and and it made me wonder, like, you know, do they do they was this poem actually originally about about South Carolina, <laughs> and instead they just changed the the location? Yeah, it is funny. I think people just overthink it a little too much and try to tailor it to to what they expect instead of. Um... You know, yeah, yeah. So that's great advice. Um, from from the perspective of just like looking at a poem, you know, as you, as you pull it out of the slush pile, as they call it, um, is there something that that makes it stand out? Like like what? How how about this question? How how far into a poem do you realize that it's good and worth you know close consideration? Do you think you can tell right away, or do you read you know, the whole poem? You know, Tim, I know you're you're. Of course, you do this as well. You do this this endeavor as well. But mm-hmm. I. Uh, I read every single poem. I read the whole thing. Um, mm. And uh, and sometimes I have to admit that sometimes my eyes touch the words, but maybe, you know, <laughs> but maybe I, I knew early on that it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to work. Uh, but, but I always wanted to give it a chance, you know? Mm. Uh, and I think that people, 
or, or poets who are submitting think that the poem has to be perfect, you know, in order to get in. And that's not always the case. Sometimes there may be there may be small problems. I mean, obviously it has to be, you know, it has to be grammatical and it has to, everything has to be spelled right and and you know everything should be if 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 it's uh, something that that deals with with you know external reality that the the uh, stuff in the poem should be you know almost this is like a New Yorker thing right that, <laughs> yeah. uh, if if you're saying there's a fish in Lake Michigan it better be there um, but but really I when I was reading uh, for actually for both uh, North American Review and and Starline. Um, I looked for uh, for poems that um, that said something interesting. Now, of course, you know the the what people say about that is that everything has been said. Well, that's not exactly true. You know, there there are different people are, are looking at at these ideas uh, and 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 um, and so on through through their own eyes. You know, rather than the eyes of of some long dead poet. And, uh, and so I always looked for something that was interesting and that was not necessarily serious, serious in serious to itself, you know, not necessarily about a serious topic as such, like you said, death, but, but that was where the, where the poem, where the poet treated the poem itself with, uh, with, uh, with, with dignity hmm. you know if that makes sense yeah that's an interesting way to put it too yeah treating the poem itself with dignity uh, i like that uh, there's a question here from vicky miko she says uh, thank you for good info vince wondering how you incorporate such detailed research to write your poems or is everything already in your brain um and it oh does, no yeah i do a lot of research mm-hmm. um yeah and it's all very uh it's all very <laughs> I guess a real researcher would say it's amateurish, you know, I mean, I, I get distracted and, and then I, uh, uh, you know, I, I end up just things that I, that I think I need to know for the poem, you know, like, uh, for example, I, I researched what in that poem, the Ian Banks poem, I researched what ship captains would, you know, ship captains on three masted ships would wear, right. What, what they're, you, uniforms uh so like i don't know that i knew the word tricorn but you know that's how i found that out uh-huh yeah uh, well we're sort of coming up on time a little bit do you want to read maybe two poems we'll we'll do one poem then a, one last question then another poem okay um here's a political poem um april 10th and what's the prompt um uh, th- that this sonnet I'm about to read uh, uh, comes from a, a prompt by Maureen Thorson. Write a poem that's a portrait of someone important to you, and uh, and Brewer write a travel poem. My mother's fear. My mo- So this was in uh, what year? Um, Twenty seventeen. So it's in the middle of the the Trump presidency. My mother's fear. My mother was an alien, a legal alien. That is, she had a green card. 
while my father and I were the family's U.S. citizens. As a kid, I wanted to visit Mexico, but my mother was afraid. Now, she was a brave woman, a doctor, the only female in her med school class during a time when only men could do such things. But for her, no Mexico. She was scared they would stop her at the border on the way back and she would get stranded alone. I thought that was foolish and silly, I remember. How could that happen? America was the land of the free. Well, Mama, today you'd be right. America great again. You were always right. That was uh, my mother's fear. Once again, from the coolest month. Um, there's a question that, that kind of fits with that poem, uh, just about craft again. But Carlton Johnson wants to know, how do you craft the ending of your poems? Uh, which is interesting. It feels like some people write toward an ending, um, that they sort of get the idea for, and then it's almost like it's like the lighthouse that they're chasing or something. And then other people, like the ending comes upon them by a surprise. Is there a way that, that you think about endings and, and how do you figure out where a poem is over and where it ends? Um, I try not to know where the poem's going. You know, mm-hmm. in the middle of the poem, I might know where it's going, but, but I, when I start the poem, I don't want to know where it's going. Um, um, you know, if, if, if you want to write a poem about the Statue of Liberty and you end up writing a poem about the Statue of Liberty, who cares, right? <laughs> uh, um, um, with, with a swang book, uh, that was changed because I, I wrote those, the poems not in the order of the narrative, but I, I wrote them, you know, as things occurred to me that there's something that might be in their lives. And then, and then I had to stitch in poems to bridge uh what i'd done right one poem uh you know set in a certain place and time and then another poem set in the place and time and then i had to somehow bridge those uh and that's and 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 also keep the keep the 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 uh the plot of the of the story going so in that respect with those poems i was uh i knew what i needed the poem to do you know, in within the the context of the narrative, but I didn't always know how it was going to end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and so I try to surprise myself when when I write a poem. Yeah, yeah, that's good advice too. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask you too before we do the last poem, you um your um your blog is the man with the blue guitar, and you mentioned a few times in different places um in bios and things that your favorite color is blue. And I'm curious, like, what is it about blue? Um, and, and, and what, I don't know, like, like, what is it that makes your favorite color blue? I, I, one of the, that's one of those things where maybe because of my personality type or something, I like when people ask me what my favorite color is, I just like make it up. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and so when my kid, like my kids, you know, when you have little kids, they love asking like what your favorite color is and then they change it and they announce it like it's a big change. And it's something that I just, I, it doesn't, it doesn't register. Um, so, so what is it about that, about blue that makes it your favorite color? Okay. Well, I remember when I was in fifth grade, I really liked orange. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> it hasn't always been blue, but, and I don't know when it became blue, but I like, I have a lot of blue clothes and, and I have a lot of poems that have the word blue in them. And, um, uh, I don't know what it is. About it isn't blue. Your, is your daughter's middle name blue? Yeah. My, my ex-wife's name, uh, or, or maiden name, is blue. Oh, okay. Interesting. And so all of our, all, all four of those kids have the middle name blue. Yeah. Cause we published Amanda in uh, issue 24. So yeah. Yep. Yep. 
So, so what is it about the blue though? Like, do you, do you have any, is there like an emotion <laughs> attached to it? Um, I mean, I have no idea. Yeah, I think maybe, like, I always think that maybe it's that, what's it called, the synesthesia? And maybe I just, like, don't have the synesthesia gene, so, like, there's no connection to to colors? I don't know. I'm not this synesthetic at all, so that's Hmm. not what it's from. I I do love, I love, well, something I would probably make up is that I I love the sky and I love the ocean, Mm -hmm. and and both of those things are blue, and so, no, that's a... That was BS. I just said that. <laughs> I don't actually know the answer. Yeah, that's the thing. I've like interrogated my kids about this, and I can't. They don't even know. They don't know either. And I, I feel like I'm missing out on something big by by not having a favorite color. But <laughs> well, I'm it, moving these days. I'm kind of drifting over to purple. I go back and forth now. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's right next door, right? Mm-hmm. Well, not exactly because purple is red and blue together. Violet is. Well, according to Newton, it's blue and then indigo and then violet. And I love indigo. You know, I'm not so sure it's an actual real color because um, Newton wanted to have seven colors because it was a mystical number. Right? Oh, really? So, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I, I really think that there's blue and there's violet and indigo was, a, was you know, even though indigo is a real thing, you know, he, he made it one of the seven, you know. By the way... Um, Different cultures, and I remember this sort of vaguely from linguistics classes in in, in undergrad years, uh, that different um, uh, cultures see colors differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you might have a, and I'm making this up now, but but you might have, I mean, I'm hypothetical. Uh, you might have a uh, a culture, in, and in their language, red and orange might be the same color. It might merge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, that's always interesting. And, and blue is the the newest color in the English language. There's um there's a paper that somebody came out with uh, years ago, maybe ten years ago. But but they realized that there's no color blue in um in in Dante maybe or, or something like that. Mm. And so they looked back through all of literature to find the first appearance of blue. And people would refer to you know the ink dark sea. They'd refer to the ocean as black. And they refer to the sky as gray until somewhere uh, the blue as a color was like introduced into European consciousness or something, which is really fascinating. Like I always look up at the sky and say, like, how could you think that is gray? You know, but they used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's read one last poem to close it out. Vince, what do you want to do? All right. But thanks for this fun discussion and, and humoring me with that. Thank you, Tim. Uh, I, I appreciate it. Um, so this is a poem that, that uh, Gowan's rap, I think you have it, um, and Gowan's rap goes back to the 80s. I wrote this as, as, a, as, a, um, as an MFA student. And I wrote it really because, you know, you, you probably remember or some people will remember uh, the, the, the poetry wars, you know, between the formalists and the, and the free verse writers back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Thank God that's gone. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Know. But that, of course, was in our workshop, in our MFA workshop. There were people who, who well, me, uh, Lee, Lee Harlan Bayhan, and I were pretty much the two, the two formalists, and everybody else was, was you know, was uh, it was like open warfare. And um, um, I learned from that how to disguise my formal poetry, you know, through slant rhyme and through, through. Um, mixing up meter you know uh and um but anyway 
All right. So I wrote this poem because it was going to be, you know, like, here's here's my insult to my to my, you know, my nemesis in uh, in the workshop. And and then and then, of course, it didn't work. It was a failed revenge because because everybody loved the poem, even though it was, <laughs> you know, so formalist. It's called Gawain's Rap. Um, and there, there are internal rhymes. Each, each, each uh, first and third line has an inner internal rhyme, and then, uh, and then it's A B A B, um, or A B C B. I know uh, whatever. Okay, you guys can see the the the, the, the way it looks. Gowan's rap. Yo, my name is Sir G, and I got the energy to kill you, a giant green dragon, then rescue a girl down in the underworld before breakfast. I ain't even bragging. It was Saturday night, and we were partying right, yeah, Christmas at King Arthur's crib. When swoosh through the doors up the great big horse and the rider, man, he was a trip. He was green, he was green, ain't kidding you, green. Greener than the back of a dollar. Decked in emerald gauze like the Wizard of Oz on his emerald horse, he hollered. Now who's tough enough to risk all his puffed Wheaties on a T9 to wager? Who'll strike me first? Baby, do your worst, then let me hit you back a year later. I thought, what the heck, so I took his green axe and twish. I decapped his head, but the jerk jumped right up and picked that thing up. I'll see you next year, chump, he said. Well, that's the end of my song, but don't get me wrong. Next yuletide, I hang at Hulk's castle. I play with his wife and give him his life, then slide back here, Jack. No hassle. <laughs> that was great. That was Gawain's rap. Um, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. That's a great poem to end on. Is an example of, um, you know, just a perfect example of your style, of just having fun with poetry. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and that goes back to about 1986. So I've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, yeah, thanks again, Vince. Uh, really, really happy talking to you. It's been fun. Okay, thanks, Tim. Yep, good night. Good night. Well, and once again, that was Vince Gutera um, with his newest book, uh, The Coolest Month. I'll put this on screen one last time. The Coolest Month. And um, yeah, his Vince is also, we didn't get to talk about it, but uh, he's also a guitar player. And I think, I assume that's his own guitar on there. And then this is available from uh, right there. It is Final Thursday Press. The best place to go, um, if I'm going to share a link, which I always like to do, is, is vincegotera.blogspot.com. And if you're wondering how to spell that, for those uh, podcast listeners later, it's Vince um, Gotera, G-O-T-E-R-A. And so uh, vincegotera.blogspot.com is his website. So check him out and check out this book, The Coolest Month. And um, now before we move on to the open lines, there's a couple things I wanted to share. And if you look in the show notes, I added a couple links. So, so first of all, there's no show next week. And the reason there's no show next week um, is, let me... Um, I should have thought about doing this. So we have um, a live event. And so this doesn't really apply to everybody, but for the people in Los Angeles, um, we have a Poetry Day with Rattle up in Wrightwood, California, the uh, mountain ski resort town. And uh, there's a Sunday, December 19th, next Sunday. I'll be doing that, so I can't do the show. I'm just going to take a week off because I could use a break, too, after reading all these contest poems. But um, you can go to wrightwoodarts.com and um, sign up if you're local enough that you can go. The, there's a workshop in the morning and then a poetry reading in the afternoon with a lunch break in between. The guests are Kathleen McClung, who uh, was the winner of the last year's Rattle Poetry or Rattle Chaplick Prize, one of the winners, and um, and Michael Mayerhofer, who we publish all the time, a just wonderful poet. And um, so they're going to be leading workshops in the morning and then doing a poetry reading with an open mic in the afternoon. So uh, come out and sign up for that. The workshops are twenty dollars, 
um, to attend. And there's a cap of uh, 10 people. And we're following all the COVID guidelines for the county, which means like masks and things like that. So, um, and, and we'll do the reading outside, I think. Uh, but the workshops are inside. So um, anyway, that is uh, the registration deadline is this Wednesday. And then, um, but if you're missing me and would like to see more of me, I have a um, another link down here, which is to litmagnews.substack.com, um, which is Becky Touche's um, um, online magazine. She used to do the review, the review, the review, review. And now she has this really cool interview series um, where she's interviewing editors. And I just, it, it's a fun thing. I like watching it because um, like I mentioned earlier, I don't um, talk to editors much. I'm kind of a recluse. And so for me, it's really interesting to see how other people like go about the job I do. Um, and so Quincy Lear was uh, last week's guest. He's always fun. And, uh, and then there's me next week, this Friday, if you would like to sign up, it's like a Zoom thing. So if you'd like to get the Zoom link, you can register there. That is Friday at, um, what time? It's after the critique of the week. Friday, where does it say the time? Let's see, I'll have to click on this. Friday, there it is, Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. So if you'd like to join in and talk more about Rattle and have me like on the opposite on answering questions instead of um, asking questions, um, then join us there. And um, one more thing, this is a really interesting opportunity. It's the last of the extra bonus links I put in the bottom, which is not something I usually do. But someone reached out to me and offered two free tickets um, to kind of promote this show. So um, this is Renaissance Heart. Let me put this on the screen as well. Um, this is Stick Figure Productions, and it's another event in Los Angeles. So it only really applies to people who can get to Los Angeles. But um, this is uh, presented by Red Hen Press. And Renaissance Heart is a, um, how do they characterize it? It's a new eclectic global music project that blends the multiple genres of jazz, world music, folk, and classical influence. And um, they have two um, Red Hen Press student or Red Hen Press poets that are performing with them. Um, they'll be reading poems interspersed. Um, and it is uh, Douglas Manuel and um, Francesca Bell, who uh, you both know. Everybody should know who they are. Uh, we publish Francesca all the time. And uh, she was on Rattlecast number like 17 or something. So they call it Poetry Coloring by the Poets at Red Hen Press. Um, you could buy tickets, but if anybody would like to go, the first person who asked for two tickets, um, there'll be tickets for you at Will Call. You do have to be vaccinated. So um, email me, tim at rattle.com, if you are interested. I know that you know, the Rattlecast is all over the world and not just in Los Angeles. I don't know who's listening in Los Angeles, but uh, I'm sure someone is. So the first person to ask for two free tickets to the show, you have to be vaccinated. It is uh, October 2nd. Um, just email me, and I'll uh, make sure I'll set that up with the person who offered them. So thanks. Uh, you know, If you're interested, please do let me know. And now, those are the three links I wanted to share. And now we are going to go to the open lines. And um, for the open lines, how it works is that you email your poems to openmicatrattle.com. If you haven't yet, just email them there. Then I will call you up, you can, or you call me. So uh, you can send me a chat message over Skype to Rattle Poetry, all one word. Just type hi, and, and I'll see you there. And that's how you add, get added to the call list. The other way you can is call in by phone, 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times and hang up, and I will call you back when it's your turn. You just get in line that way. Um, and so email your poem first to make sure I get it, and then uh, talk to me one of those two ways. If you uh, can't read it and you would like me to just read, just say so in your email, and I'll just read it for you too. That's another option, and always is. So um, that'll be the open lines in just a moment. I'm going to take a quick break, 
and um, I'll be right back as I set this stuff up. And I'm back. The funny thing is that my open mic at rattle.com account, apparently Google um, leaves you logged in exactly one um, one week to the minute. So um, every time when I go to log in or when I go look at the open lines, it used to be up and then I'm automatically logged out. I have to type in my password during the middle of every single show. I'm going to have to like log out, then log back in later so that that happens like later in the night at least. Uh, but that's happened like like six shows in a row. Um, anyway, I am back into that account and we're going to start out with, um, a veteran like we usually do just so you can see how it goes. If you're new, um, and we have a bunch of new people too. There's Bruce need, um, there's an 802 number. Um, there is a, um, six, four, six number. There's a Jerry Stephenson, um, who's going to be on Skype for the first time. I think he's called before by phone. There's a seven, one, eight. There's a six, oh, nine. We got Mike Bales. We got Nivedita Karthik. We've have Carla Schwartz. Uh, the first person to ask was uh, Richard Westheimer. I'm going to call him up. and um, But just so you know, when I call you, um, there's a delay on the program. So shut off your stream or at least mute it um, so you're not seeing two of me at the same time from two different times. And also um, have your poem ready to read because you're not going to be able to see it because of that delay. So it's about a 30-second delay. So the part you're reading won't be what's on screen, and that doesn't work. So make sure you have your poem with you. And when I call you up, just mute or just X out completely of the stream wherever you're watching this, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Anyway, let's call up Richard Westheimer first, and then we'll uh, move on down the list. Hey, Richard. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Tim beautiful day here in southwest ohio yeah that, that's great to hear yeah nice day here too although i uh i i sprained my knee playing tennis so i didn't get to play oh. my, in my softball league today and i was really bummed and i'm waiting for my text i don't know if the team can win without me but um either my my pride will be maintained or our winning record will be maintained <laughs> i don't know we'll oh, see gosh. but um yeah quick so, recovery yeah yeah you. yeah i've been limping around for the last I, two I days tweak, i tweaked my back a little bit hauling firewood so we're, oh, yeah. we're each engaged in our <laughs> yeah there you go sports um, so what did you i have the prompt poem first oh i never said what the prompt was um let me just tell everybody the prompt was to um write an anagram a poem that includes anagram in it which is shuffling around the letters to make new words and um and oh i gotta read uh, megan's so, poem too i just totally oh. spaced out thinking about all that stuff but i'll oh, read what? no i'll read megan's poem after i read yours oh okay um, so, so um, I, have, I have a pr poem the we who stood in silence and uh anagram poem do you want just one yeah why don't you choose just one actually because i think we have a lot of people signed up okay um i think i'll do i think i'll do the um uh we who stood in silence the uh okay uh, the one I submitted for. Okay, I have it. And this, uh, do you want to tell what it, what it was about? Yeah. So actually, the poem was written three years ago. There was a mass shooting in Cincinnati uh, three years ago this past Monday. So it sort of came up as I was looking at it, and I had just read a, a article about another mass shooting. You know, right? You could use this poem every week, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but this was the third anniversary, and there were lots of commemorations. And um, I attended the memorial, uh, sort of the vigil the day after, and um, one of the uh, religious people speaking 
misquoted Nehemiah 9.32, which I didn't know until I, I heard this line and I, where did he get this? Um, and it's the, it's the repeated, one of the repeated lines. And I forget what form this is. You, you'll probably know. The Villanelle looks like? Is that what it is? Yeah, I'm bad at remembering things. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's called, We Who Stood in Silence. And you'll see the line. It's the third line. The shots bled out in crimson pools. The priest intoned into the crowd. The awful, awesome God likes it not. We, the people, stood in mournful mood, short steps from the sorrowed place where those shot bled out in crimson pools. Their shattered bones, splattered flesh, arrayed like leavings from a warlord's feast. The awful, awesome God likes it not? Then why did the God put the gun in the hand of the man whose anger quaked and made him take the shots that bled out in crimson pools? We who stood there on the square held each other in our grief. We heard the awful, awesome God likes it not from the priest who speaks with a creamy voice of gifts of peace from some mighty king who just watched as those shot bled out in crimson pools. Who says the awful, awesome God likes it not? Yeah, excellent poem. The third refrains really work well. We who stood in silence. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And, and yeah. I, I'm feeling embarrassed as a poetry writer that I can't remember if that's a villanelle or not. Well, it's been a long I'm weekend. Embarrassed as a poet who wrote it. <laughs> yeah, I, I get those in like Tertzarimas, and I don't know. I have to always have to look it up every time. Um, but anyway, uh, thanks, Tim. You have a, yeah, you have a good. Yeah, one. thanks, Richard. Bye. Bye. It was uh, Richard Westheimer with uh, "We Who Stood in Silence," and um, I'm sure somebody in the chat is telling me what form that is. Let's see. Um, no one's no one's backing me up, so so I have to just not know. So as I said, we're gonna have to do um, just one poem, I think, this week, because um, we got a lot of people lined up, which is great. So um, and it's already six forty one or my time. Um, so let us uh, let's do Megan's poem, which I'd I'd forgotten when I was trying to I was trying not to forget. I was actually supposed to give out those free tickets last week, and I forgot. And so while I was um, making sure that I didn't forget this time. I forgot to do Megan. I forgot to do the prompt poem. And so the prompt, once again, which I'll put on screen here. Oops, wrong one. This is, um, write a poem that contains an anagram. An anagram is created by rearranging the letters of a certain word or phrase to make another word or phrase. For example, an anagram of anagram is nag a ram. Bonus points if the title of your poem is part of the anagram. And so this was Megan's poem, um, listen is an anagram of silent, and I haven't re read this yet, but we'll see. Listen is an anagram of silent here, and this poem is listen. We were nine in my friend's basement, playing with plastic Lion King figurines, making Mufasa fall off the bed, the cliff, over and over again, laughing at the way he skittered across the carpet floor when it happened. My, mother, my friend's mother screamed. It wasn't a scream like when you see a spider the size of a kitten, or when you're watching a scary movie or a book falls from the shelf and you're sure it was a ghost. It was like when you got a, get a phone call on an ordinary Tuesday evening and the voice on the other end says, regret to inform, and your son, in the same sentence, and a sound like that makes you listen, even when you don't want to, 
even when it's the worst sound you've ever heard. My friend and I, we went silent, and it was, wasn't silent like when our teacher told our class, one more word and you all miss recess, while we shot looks at each other that said, this is so unfair. This was the kind of silence that only happens when your friend is looking at you like everything that once made sense doesn't anymore. And Mufasa is on the floor, one blank eye looking up at us, and my friend goes downstairs and I say there, listening, as family members spill in and they're all wailing together and I'm clutching Mufasa like I'm trying to save him until somebody calls my dad to pick me up and he pats my knee and though it's dark now, he suggests ice cream. So we sit in his truck and I lick my vanilla cone and listen to the coyotes howling in the distance and remember how I used to think they sounded sad. So that was silent, or listen, listen. That was Megan's poem for the week, listen, and um, very interesting. I wonder, um, there's two options. I, didn't, I don't even know which one that's about, um, so I'm, I'm curious. But um, that was listen, but I might have to ask her later. Um, so now let's go back to the open lines. And um, oops, I didn't want to do that. Okay. Let's go back to the open lines, and let's call up um, Bruce Need over on um, Skype. Hey, Bruce, how you doing? Hey, Tim, how are you? I'm doing good. I don't know if you want to come in on video, but if you do, click the camera button so you come in. Okay, hold on. Okay. Uh, where's my camera button? <laughs> <laughs> it's right next to the hang-up and next to the mute on the bottom. Um, hmm. Well, if you don't see it, that's fine, too. Um, yeah, that doesn't really matter as long as you can hear me. Yeah, it's all good. So what did you want to share? Uh, the one I sent to you um, by email earlier today is called Journal Evening, Loving Near June. Yeah, it sounds good. Which it, is it, itself an anagram. Oh, perfect. Yeah, there you go. So it's for the prompt. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about it, or do you just want to go right into it? Well, um, I, I uh, wrote this poem after reading some poetry by Peter Pereira. Hmm. Uh, so it's a you know, the dedication to him there. Uh, from his book called What's Written on the Body. And he has uh, several poems that use anagrams and wordplay. So I was kind of inspired by that. And just kind of just a kind of a fun poem about summer that um, uh, has about 16 or 17 uh, different varieties of anagrams and then some other wordplay mixed in there. So it's just kind of fun to write. Interesting. Yeah, looking forward to hearing this. Go ahead whenever you're ready. It's up for everybody at home. All right. Uh, Journal Evening, Loving Near June, after Peter Pereira. Let the summer simmer, slice the melon and the lemon, watch as he takes the steak and grills it for the girls and boys. Oh boy, don't waste sweat on this afternoon, raft on one lake or another, not hearing the hubbub. Laze with zeal, find a breeze and play on words, sword play on paper. Hang consonants, almost constant, on wind chimes. Let no one chide your whims. Jumble letters, add and subtract. We love solos. Let loose vowels in the air like fireflies. Life fries us enough. Let's relax, sell extra time, emit happiness, eat, drink, trade ink, write about summer, into the night thing that brings mosquitoes, so some quit to go inside while we stand under stars, sure strands of sky we understand. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing. That was Bruce Need with a journal evening, loving near June. Thanks, Bruce. Well, you're welcome. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, good night. Okay, let's see. 
So excellent poem so far. Let's call up uh, Jerry Steffens. And I think we've had him on the phone before, but not on, um, on video. So we'll see. Jerry, hello. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing good, Tim. How are you? I'm doing great. You too, if you want to come on video, the camera button right there is something you have to hit. It, my camera button is apparently not working. That's strange. I wonder. Yeah. Oh, well, that's two in a row, and we just couldn't get a connection. Maybe there's another yeah. uh, technical difficulties day in the uh, internet It's probably land. me. I'm new to this. <laughs> well, yeah, but you're not alone. It's been a problem all night. Uh, but anyway, we can just uh, listen to the beautiful sound of your voice. And uh, what is it that you wanted to share? Well, the first one is I got uh, your prompt for 100 years mm-hmm. and the prompt for uh, an anagram. So I put them in together with very few words. Okay, cool. Yeah, these are both short. So why don't you, even though it's a one poem limit, let's just yeah. do both. Okay, thank you. Okay. It's called Tripo. Thinking never more, he goes back 100 years or more, never less than the best. Poetry, open and free. What a wonderful way for a poet to be. <laughs> very nice. <laughs> and, and and what's this other one? Since that was so short, what is this other one, Melting? This other one is called Melting, and it's a story, and I'll give you a quick background on it. When our daughter was about three years old, we got a kitten for her. Mm-hmm. The kitten had a problem with the Montcalm car, and uh, it came to an end, and we had to explain this to our daughter. So 40 years later, I think I got the answer to the question, and Spillowords was kind enough to publish it for me the day before my daughter's birthday which he was here visiting. But anyways, I'll read you Melting, if you would like. Okay, and this is from uh, Spillwords.com. If you want to find it, Spillwords.com slash Melting. Pretty pretty easy URL, too. Yeah, thank you. Melting, our daughter asked when a toddler, is that what death is? Now that here-today-gone-tomorrow approach resonates louder than most responses. Now she's a mother, and the questions will come. Melting now in my life makes more sense than most explanations, rationalizations, and holy stuff. Grasping this concept is somehow freeing. This I can visualize. It's even tactile, yet slipping away, yet still in present. Though a dozen years later, after being seasoned a bit more to death, or so we thought, we were proven incorrect. She, us, we, and I lost her brother. Maybe in a way we misplaced him, but he melted, and he does not come back. Now, miles down the road, I think of all the melted I've known. Family, friends, neighbors, casual acquaintances, all those loved ones. Now my always and ever so smart daughter will engage her daughter. They, too, will discuss melting. I trust the pros, the cons, the trek of grief, of hope and future. I know others who will melt. Sadly, before their time, at their time, or maybe past their best before date, then one day I'll melt. Then maybe then I will learn the answer to her question. Excellent. Thank you. Very touching poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jerry. You're very welcome. But I was trying to, after I listened to your, your great interview with that guy, and I thought, Jesus, I'm doing a death poem tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's the. Well, you know, it's the most important topic. That's what we're, you know, we're hey, all dealing right. with death. That's what we're doing in life. So, <laughs> a pleasure as always. Thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, thank you, Jerry. Okay, bye bye. Um, yeah, and you can see there, uh, just really quick, his uh, bio Jerry is born and raised in the prairies of Manitoba, Canada, along the Red River and just south of Lake Winnipeg, then Alberta, and 10 years in the Rockies just above Man- Montana. 
the last decade in the Canadian Gulf Islands. People, ideas, and stories set the stage of my poetry and writing. Music and art fill my days, and verse fills my head. And um, this is uh, Jerry Stephenson's poem uh, from from uh, this magazine, Where Words Matter, Still, Still Words Press. So always cool to, to point out some other, other magazines and things, too. Let's see. Next up, let's try a first-time caller. We're going to go with... Let's see. So we have a 7818 number. We have a 609. But I'm going to go back to the order they were received and call up Nivedita. Hey, Nivy, How are you doing tonight? Doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. Um, and uh, how are things there? Pretty good. Almost back to normal, I would say. So that, That's really good. Um, glad to hear it. Um, and what do you want to share? I think there's a, there's a, unless they're short, there's a one poem limit tonight. Uh, which one would you like? Um, that's, that's totally up to you. One is probably, it would take me one minute to read each poem. So you you can take a call. Okay. Um, let's do the, the loose goats and rams in Southfield, Michigan. Mm-hmm. This is okay. the one I had up lawn mowing goats. <laughs> it's another funny story. Um, Lawn mowing goats and rams escape through Michigan town. Do you want to explain a little bit what this was? So apparently some farmer there had let out his goats to some some house there for helping them trim their grass. Uh-huh. Because goats are natural lawn mowers. And then they sort of escaped that house and went sort of on a rampage through town into people's houses they weren't supposed to go to and started eating their lawns as well. Yeah, so I, wish they, was, I wish they would come over to my house. <laughs> so we got we got a lot of weeds they could take care of. <laughs> um, okay, so let's hear hear this poem about it. Landscape artist. Summer was almost done, and it's time for the grass to get a trim. But she wondered, who's the one going to give in to my wimps? She tried Jim and Tom and even Dick. Sadly, they were all overbooked. So this desperate chick just searched and looked and searched and looked. And then helped arrive in her hour of need from the most surprising place ever. She found a solution to her problem of weeds, and my wasn't that solution clever. She found the best landscape artist you ever did see, and as a bonus, was told she would get some milk as well tree. But the artist was as temperamental as can be, and soon started pruning her ornamental bonsai tree. So she gently led him to the yard out back and decided to treat herself to a small snack. Sound of the promised tasty milk. Oh, which would have failed. But she didn't realize the goat she had bought was a male. <laughs> Good punchline at the end there, landscape artist. And yet, actually, now that you mention it, though, we have a bunch of fruit trees, and I wouldn't want them eating my fruit trees. And, and I, you know, our, down the street, there's some people with a bunch of goats, and they climb trees. I, I didn't, See, everything. Basically, if it's there, it, it'll be eaten. Yeah. Yeah, so, on whatever it is. <laughs> Yeah, so I take that back. No goats in my yard. But thanks for sharing that, Nevi. Fun as always. I always appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. That was a Nivy DeCarthic with Landscape Artist. And um, let me see. Whose turn would it be next? Let me read Carlton Schwartz's poem. I think Carlton is next in line. And um, this was a poet respond poem. Let's see if there's details. Um, let's see. So we'll do... So this is my poetry spawn poem, and is the second poem. Um, the title comes from uh, 9-11 plus 20 years, 931. Interesting. And this is uh, Carlton Johnson's 931 poem. 931 by Carlton Johnson. 
Now we are here in this garden grove. Into a sunlit blue we spun and wove. Never before have we seen such loss. Even now, after twenty years, gray moss encroaches on memories. What do we do then? Live life in spite of the grief, the pain, enduring like the grassy ferns, violence abounds in the end we learn. Everything must go. Everything must change. No more, the sky is falling. But indeed, life is strange. Excellent poem by Carlton. That's a 931. And thanks for sharing that, Carlton. Uh, let's see. Let's call up. Let's try another uh, first-time caller. And we'll try the 718. Then we'll go to Joseph Nolan after that. I think he, it's his turn next. And then Carla Schwartz. That'll be the, the plan, if I remember it. Hello. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle, and you are live on the air on the Rattlecast. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay. Uh, who who am I talking to? This is uh, Phil Stern. Ah, thanks so much for joining us again, Phil. And uh, what what did you want to share tonight? Okay, uh, there's been so much doom and gloom, especially this weekend. Um, I. Th- I- I'm going to share a poem that I wrote a little while ago. Um, It's actually based on a line from a song I wrote many, many years ago. And it's about the need, the need to listen to one another. That sounds like a good poem for for now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's called let us sing to one another. Well, everybody brings baggage, carry ons of events concrete. For him, there was the earthquake when he was 11, when he came upon his birth certificate and learned that elders had kept secret an early death, weeks at a foundling home, a year of shuttling to hard-eyed ants, and that the mother who made him breakfast that morning was not his mother. For her, there was a mother who abandoned her when she was 16, dying with only her in the hospital room, a mother who loved her, but who killed herself by neglecting cancerous signs. And then, at 19, a father who also abandoned her, hanging himself because he broke his arm and could not work and was convinced that he had cancer. Soon after they met, she came to see his need and sang to him, You're always saying you got to be hard, keep up your guard. Well, I'll be, you'll see, the softness in your life a softness in your life. And soon after they met, he came to see her fears and sang to her. After we have a good day, you always say, don't leave me. Well, I say, you are strong. You are a survivor, but I'll stay. You'll see, I'll stay. A uh, very sweet poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Phil. That was uh, Let Us Sing to One Another. I'm I'm curious, uh, did you do a lot of songwriting before coming to poetry, or, or did you sort of do both together? Well, I no, I wrote poetry when I was very young, mm-hmm. and uh, then uh, I went into songwriting. I did that quite a while ago, actually. <laughs> I'm an old geezer. <laughs> I, I wrote in the 60s and 70s, and um, then uh, I did. I taught for a while at, in college, uh, literature, English, mm-hmm. of course, <laughs> and just came back to writing poetry uh, five years ago oh, when I retired fully. Yeah, well, I'm so glad yes. you did, and thanks so much for joining us. All right, thank you for letting me share. Yep, good night. Bye. 
Yeah, that was uh, Philip Stern with Let Us Sing to One Another. And let me add Philip into our um, our phone book as well, so we know who it is next time. Okay. So I was looking at how many people we have in the phone book, by the way, and I, it was too many to count. So there, there's no easy way to uh, count. It was, it was hundreds, though. Okay, let me see next. Yeah, let's go to um, Muhammad al-Bawihi. Hi. Hey, Muhammad. How are you doing today? I'm good, Tim. How are you? I'm good. Uh, do you want to push, push the camera button? Um, I'm kind oh. of curious if, if it'll work because yeah. it hasn't for a few people now. There you go. Okay. Working? Yep, it oh, works nice. perfectly. Yeah. Okay. And you are still oh, yeah. um, in your space station outpost. <laughs> oh, yeah. Our Earth is still quite disturbing, so I'm, I'm staying here for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I don't blame you. Um, so, so what did you want to share tonight? Uh, a short poem called Into the Land of the Living. I uh, emailed it just a short while ago. Yeah, I have it right here. Is there anything you want to say before you read it? Uh, this is for um, a lost loved one, my mm. own daughter, actually. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. Uh, may I read? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Darling, for you, I swam through solid rock, slept on a bed of air and built you a house out of water. I walked a mile in the shoes of time, dove into the depths of the ocean, and took Poseidon's chariot for a spin. For you, I slowed down light, spun the earth the other way, moved the moon a little closer, and brought the sky to my cheeks. I crushed a planet between my fingers, took a sip of the glowing sun, traveled back in time, and swallowed a galaxy whole. I had tea with Adam and Eve, took a photo of the Big Bang, played catch with a dinosaur, and split the atom with my teeth. For you that I've done and more, would you now do one thing for me? Come back into the land of the living. Oh, so so touching. Thank Thanks so much for sharing that. And I'm, I'm so sorry for, for having to, you have to write it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Yeah, yeah I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks yeah. for having me. Have a good night. And uh, you too. Good night. Yeah. Good night. Um, yeah, little little teary-eyed on that one. Um, thanks for sharing that, Mohammed. That was Into the Land of the Living. And, um, yeah, let's go now to, <laughs> I don't know if I should say this, um, but yeah, so <laughs> I don't know if I should say, so, um, um, so, so Peter, uh, Peter King Badger O'Donohue, um, who was on last week, he says he wants me to read this, uh, because he's too drunk right now to, uh, <laughs> to read it himself. So here comes, um. This is uh, Luciano Pavarotti's Eyebrows. Is that the right title? I think so. Okay. So here's the poem um, from from Peter King Badger O'Donohue. And um, here we go. Luciano, hang on one second. Okay. Luciano Pavarotti's Eyebrows go on holiday with James Brown's dentist. I got them good, dazzling. Jesus, that cat can sing. The muscles of his molars, the precision of his insiders. I love that man. But you too, shoe-polished black, origami-cut, college-inserted, collage-inserted, kabuki-cool, unperturbed by the sweet sweat of Big P's brow. The dab and sweep of the white silk handkerchief is something to behold. Let's ditch the beach, hire a car, be two Louises and a Thelma, make a funk soul opera before breakfast. Excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. And that was uh, 
Peter King, Badger, O'Donohue, and um, and there was a like PK. Was it PK the um, the press that he runs? Um, let's see. Well, anyway, yeah, a great poem by Peter Peter O'Donohue. Thanks, Peter. And uh, let's call up. Uh, we have Joseph Nolan next. I think I saw Joseph Nolan. Oh, and we have to do. We have um, Carla Schwartz too. Um, I, um, let's see. Where'd Joseph go? There's Joseph. Ah, oh, they're next to each other. I should have called them both earlier. You were way ahead on the call list, guys. But hey, Joseph, you're live on the air. How are you doing today? Good, Tim. Uh, what is it that you wanted to share? My poem is called. What she has to say. Yeah, do you want to say anything about it, or do you want to just jump right in? Well, it's about the restriction of abortion rights recently with the law in Texas and mm-hmm. the declining of the Supreme Court to hear that particular challenge. Yeah. So I'll just go ahead? Yeah, go ahead. It's up on screen for everybody now. What she has to say. The burden of conception, the weight of birth and death, The way they are demanding on every beat and breath of hearts carrying light into flesh, and how they are encumbered by anchors set away down into the murky depths beneath the hopes of those who pray. A woman's forlorn decision to bear or hold at bay has become so painfully political. They don't want to hear anymore what she has to say. Oh, very nice. Thanks for sharing that. That was what she has to say. I love the, the music as always. Thanks. Thanks, Tim. Bye. Yeah, bye. That was uh, Joseph Nolan with What She Has to Say. And um, let's see. Next we will go um, back down to Carla Schwartz. There she is. Hi. Hey, Hi, Carla. Tim. Yeah, how are you doing tonight? I am good, and I am going to get my poem here. <laughs> okay, here so this go. was a prompt okay. poem, I see. Yes, it's a prompt poem. I have actually two short ones. I don't know if there's time for them. Yeah, the other they're, one's really short, so you could, you could do the other one, too. Yeah. Okay, so the first one is called um, Hello World. Okay. And... Um, and uh, so the Hello World has his, historical in the computer language uh, history that, uh, like in 1972, uh, these guys wrote a program to produce Hello World on a computer screen. Oh. And then it's used uh, now like as a test, it, for, well, two ways, to teach people how to program very simply. It's like often the first thing they do when they're learning a program is to print hello world on the screen okay yeah interesting that's actually too what um what wordpress has like if you install a new wordpress installation it says hello world right there yeah okay yeah so it's it it has history there Mm -hmm. and so there's there's um a bunch of anagrams that i wrote in here um they could be lol row held doll howler roll howled rolled howl world lol and then there's other words that you can find in here, like hollow, hollowed, red, lead, hollowed, mm-hmm. oh, howled, whore, hero, and drew. Okay. Interesting, yeah. But um, so I, I have a few of these words in here. <laughs> okay, many <laughs> scattered throughout. Okay, the first screen 
software program whirled down, low down, row on row of the hollowed machine, machines B-tongue held geeks like dolls the globe over laughing LOL spelled out hello world unless it made a howler. Oh, very good. Hello world. I like that. And then uh, what was Thank the other you. one? The other one. So I was looking up LOL because it's just so weird. <laughs> it is. And, um, and I, it's not an expression that I really use. And by the way, B was a, is a type of language that the first program was, it's a nickname for the language that mm-hmm. the first program for hello world was used. But anyway, um, um, and so I, I got, I came up with this lonely old lumberjack comes up when you Google LOL. Oh, so, <laughs> and, and, uh, an anagram for lonely old lumberjack is cloak, jumble, roll, deny. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wow. So the, lo- the, the lonely old lumberjack cloaked in his sleeping bag, all a jumble on his bed, rolled off his mattress rack to start his day with a big fat lie. Deny, 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 deny. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much. That was, those are fun, tough anagram poems. Thanks, Carla. Thank you so much. <laughs> Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Bye. 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 That was Carla Schwartz with two anagram poems, the Cloak Jumble Roll Deny and Hello World. Okay, so that is going to be it for the show. Let me do the uh, the Saiku really quick. And um, this Saiku that was based on this article from um this is from uh, science daily the warming climate is causing animals to shapeshift and I, I read this article i thought wow that's interesting climate change is not only a human problem animals have to adapt to it as well some warm-blooded animals are shape-shifting and getting larger beaks legs and ears to better regulate their body temperature as the planet gets hotter and then it goes on to talk about how all these birds are evolving bigger beaks and alan's law about how you know, appendages of animals get bigger as a way of managing heat so they can stay cool because that's the main place that um, heat escapes their body is their limbs. And so elephants have big ears and things like that. And birds have bigger beaks when it's hotter. And um, the the lead author here even goes on to say that, um, where was it? It was a, yeah, she says, prominent appendages such as ears are predicted to increase, so we might end up with a live-action Dumbo in the not-so-distant future. And so I read this, and it was a very interesting article. Then I went to the actual article in um, Cell, um, what was it in? Cell Press was um, the original publisher of this, and this is uh, Shapeshifting, Changing Animal Morphologies as a Response to Climactic, Climatic Warming. And I was left a little, it's a little bit hyperbolic, I think, based on the actual evidence that they have here. <laughs> they they do a survey of some of the literature and like like just for example there was one study that looked at um five species of birds in western australia and they found that beaks are increasing in size over the last 150 years but three of the five were were tied can be correlated to, to temperature in the previous you know years they were born basically and two weren't so the the causation um link there is really weak actually in this article i, I felt and so my Saiku was about that. And I, I also used, since I didn't write a prompt poem this week again, I um, used the prompt of an anagram as well. And uh, Chic Poison is the uh, is an anagram for the last line too. So here's my tiny Saiku. Chic Poison, a bird's beak grows faster than Pinocchio's. 
Sheik poison, a bird's beak grows faster than Pinocchio's. That is your Saiku for the week. And uh, that is it for the show. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. It was a real pleasure talking to Vince and sharing all these wonderful poems on the open lines. Um, and don't forget, if you live in the L.A. area, we have two events. We have free tickets to a musical thing in the in the show notes. We also have um, the Poetry Day. I know most people aren't in L.A., so I'm kind of curious if, if announcing here has any impact because I don't even know who's listening in L.A. And when you look at the podcast, like you see all the, the downloads, a lot of people listen to it. Um, and the different platforms, but I have no idea who they are. There's not a lot of tracking. So I'm curious to see if anybody actually listens to this in LA who will pick up those free tickets. And um, I'm also curious to see if anybody will show up to um, the uh, Poetry Day coming up next week. Um, But like I said, next week we have no show, Um, but you can find me on that uh, Lit Mag News um, interview if you'd like on Friday. And um, the next guest we're going to have is two weeks from tonight. And the next guest is going to be Deborah P. Kalaji. Um, Deborah is a, just a wonderful um, haiku poet. Um, she's the leader of the Southern California Haiku Group, a big, a prominent um, feature of the haiku community. Um, she also, speaking of um, um, Wrightwood in these poetry days, when we had the literary festival in Wrightwood, she did a, um, a haiku hike, which was the most popular thing that we did. So every year she would go out and go on a hike through the woods with people and teach them haiku. And she's just great about haiku. She's also tied very much like Vince today to the Science Fiction Poetry Association and does a lot of science fiction um, poetry things and has some other projects going on. She'll be sharing in addition to this book. So it should be really fun talking to Deborah P. Kalaji. And that is Sunday, September 26th, two weeks from tonight at the regular time. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Oh, wait, because I didn't do the next week's prompt. So hang on a second. Next week's prompt is going to be um, here. Next week's prompt is you've been driving for hours on a long, empty stretch of the highway. It's miles and miles of nothing but desert landscape. No rest stops, no gas stations. Just when you're starting to think you'll never see civilization again, a building comes into view. What is it? write a poem about it that is your prompt uh, you're driving through the desert forever no gas stations no nothing then a building appears what is it write a poem about that building that is next week's prompt and like i mentioned next week's guest is going to be deborah p kalaji and um they're not next week two weeks from now that is going to be sunday september 26th at the regular time 8 p.m eastern time 5 p.m pacific rattlecast number 111 and i will see you then hope you have a good night 